0: This week on Iowa, we're talking about one of the most famous American gangsters of all time. John Dillinger robs a bank in Mason City, Iowa.
1: Welcome to Iowa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts. Beth Lavalley and Allie Tulin.
2: Beth, it's our last bonus episode of 2021. Are you happy or sad? Those are the actually, only two options. <laughs> actually really happy. I am ready for
0: season two. I'm ready for season two, ready for 2022, ready for us
2: two to hang out. Be in Iowa at the same time. <laughs> Just We're on the up and up. I've been saying it. It's going to be great. Well, we've already covered Mason City in our Cerro Gordo County episode, and I'm happy to report we are back with former reporter and current author Joe LaVallee. His new book is out and available on Amazon and his website.
0: So like we said, we've already covered Cerro Gordo County. So I think I'm just going to focus on one fun fact for today, and that is the Surf Ballroom. So if you remember from our previous episode, we talked about the plane crash with Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and some others. The Surf Ballroom is the venue in Clear Lake, Iowa that those famous musicians played in right before the fateful plane crash. The Surf Ballroom remains a famous cultural place in America and a historical landmark. The original surf ballroom opened in 1934, but then burned down in 1947. Fortunately, there was enough desire to rebuild the ballroom, so it reopened just one year later in 1948 and is still there today.
2: The surf ballroom got its name because the original owners wanted to create a ballroom that resembled an ocean beach club. In Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Clear Lake could be the ocean. (laughs) There you go. It was decorated with palm trees, sailboats, and lighthouses. And in the 1930s and 40s, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and the Dorseys all made regular stops at the surf. Because dancing was so popular, it was a great date night and a very popular venue. And since then, artists like the Everly Brothers, Roy Orbison, and Ricky Nelson played there. And now today, big bands still stop by with names like Ario Speedwagon, Alice Cooper, <laughs> the Doobie Brothers, and countless others. So if you're in the neighborhood or if you need a night to let loose, I encourage you to stop by the surf ballroom and dance under the stars. Have you been there? I unfortunately have not.
0: (laughs) I bet I have when I was like a tiny baby, but I don't think I have like as an adult. I think it'd be.
2: It would be cool. I think
0: it'd be fun to go to. Red trip list. Yes, always. But uh, today our story isn't quite as fun or relaxing as Dancing the Night Away. We're talking about John Dillinger, again, one of the most famous American gangsters of all time, and at one point, the FBI's public enemy number one, and just because I was curious, I looked up the FBI's public enemy number one today to see if they still even, like, use that term, and the last time it was used was actually for El Chapo, who, as most people know, is currently in prison. They captured him, so they don't have a current public enemy number one. Good job. (laughs) But anyways, John Dillinger caught the attention of many Americans after the Great Depression because of his good looks, his charming attitude, his limitless courage, and sometimes his sympathetic attitude towards hurting civilians. He didn't really love shooting a bunch of guns or, you know, hurting a bunch of people. He just mainly liked robbing banks. So while he robbed many banks around the Midwest, today we are talking about the bank robbery of the first national bank in Mason City, Iowa. Our guest, Joe LaVallee, aka my father, wrote a few stories for the Globe Gazette, which is based in Mason City, Iowa, about this bank robbery. Here he is introducing himself.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm Joe LaVallee, uh, Joseph LaVallee. I'm an author and former newspaper reporter. I'm a lifelong Iowan, and and I'm happy to uh, be on Iowa talking about the Dillinger robbery. And I had the opportunity to write about it, I think, three different times in my years at the Globe Gazette in Mason City. So while I don't pretend to be an expert on the Dillinger robbery, I think I do have um, a little perspective on it that maybe some other people will enjoy hearing about.
2: So the 1930s were an infamous time for famous gangsters like Babyface Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, Machine Gun Kelly, not that one, and (laughs) others. But John Dillinger and his gang had been robbing several banks in the Midwest. They joined up with Babyface Nelson in South Dakota, and they were hiding out in St. Paul, Minnesota, when they laid their plans to visit Mason City, Iowa.
0: Before we get into the nitty-gritty details of the robbery, just a little bit of background on Dillinger. He had a pretty unstable childhood. He was raised primarily by his father after his mother died when he was just four years old. He was kind of a troubled kid and just kept getting into trouble, like petty theft and bullying, which then turned into auto theft and more. And after getting caught stealing a car, he joined the Navy. And when he got out, he almost immediately robbed a grocery store with his friend.
1: When he got out of the Navy, he... He hooked up with a friend and couldn't find a job, and they kind of decided to make some easy money, and the friend talked Dillinger into robbing a grocery store with him, and they got caught. The friend pleaded not guilty and was convicted at trial and sentenced to a short sentence, a couple of years, I think. Dillinger's father encouraged him to plead guilty, which he did, and uh, judge sentenced him to 10 to 20 years in prison. So he was a very bitter, discouraged person who felt like he had been, you know, I can't speak for him, obviously, but everything you read about him, prison was a very difficult thing, of course, and he really felt like he'd been cheated and treated unfairly. So he served eight and a half years before he was paroled, and when he got out of prison, the very first thing he did was rob a bank. In prison... He became well acquainted with other criminals and developed his ideas about how to be a successful bank robber. And uh, when he got out of prison, he immediately started uh, robbing banks.
2: So then John Dillinger and his gang arrive in Mason City, Iowa on March 13, 1934. A dark blue Buick sedan, much bigger than our sedans today, made its way to First National Bank. And they had chosen this bank because they heard that it had plenty of cash... And we're aiming to steal upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars.
1: It was a big, well-financed bank to start with, and Mason City had big uh, cement plants and brick production and meat packing. So even at the heart of the Great Depression, there was quite a bit of commercial activity in Mason City because you know, with the WPA, things were being built and cement was needed and bricks were needed, and so people had jobs and. The day that Dillinger arrived there, the bank had an unusual amount of cash on hand to pay for people's paychecks.
2: Seven men were with Dillinger that day John Red Hamilton, George Babyface Nelson, Eugene Eddie Green, Tommy Carroll, Homer Van Meter, and either Joseph Burns or Red Forsyth. The Des Moines Tribune says there were six men and one woman, but later accounts identified the seventh man as John Paul Chase.
0: It was a pretty cold March day in Iowa, but the town square was bustling. There was even a cameraman filming the First National Bank that day. That actually caused some problems.
1: When this was all occurring, the townspeople on the street assumed that a movie was being made because totally coincidentally that morning, a guy with a movie camera had been filming in the First National Bank. So when they heard the gunshots and the alarm go off and saw the policemen running toward the bank, they assumed a movie was being made. So they actually, the townspeople actually started gravitating toward the bank to watch what was going on.
2: I actually did look up that footage. It's kind of funny. (laughs) Okay, I couldn't find it anywhere. What are your secrets? I don't know. I think I found it on YouTube. Shoot. I'll send it to you. Yeah, I want to see it. Yeah. I'm not sure how long those townspeople stayed there before they realized that it was actually happening. The gang entered the building by firing shots at the security guard cage.
1: In those days, the guard cages were up on a bank ceilings were 20 feet high, two stories high, and the bank cage was up on the higher level, like at a balcony level. And so one of the first things they did was take the Tommy gun and blast into the guard's cage.
2: That same security guard at the entrance of the building fired tear gas as the gang members walked into the bank. They immediately shot at the walls and the ceiling and yelled for everyone to get on the ground and made their demands like you see in movies, like asking people to stay where they are so they won't get hurt and then holding the bank employees at gunpoint to get what they wanted.
0: That's about the only thing that was close to the movies, though.
2: (laughs) The rest (laughs) is
0: pretty exaggerated. So one of the gang members, Hamilton, then asked assistant bank cashier Harry Fisher to the vault. This is typically where the gang cash is in, but this time it went awry, all thanks to Harry Fisher.
1: You know, most bank vaults have a massive door that's locked at night. And then during the day, they have more of a door that looks like a jail cell door. Well, this thing was spring loaded and they had it propped open with a sack of coins. And so when the bank employee went into the vault, At gunpoint to fetch the cash for the bank robbers, he kicked that sack of coins out of the way and the gate shut and locked. So the robber was on the outside and the bank employee was on the inside, and the robber's sticking his Tommy gun through the bars saying, Give me all your cash. And the bank employee proceeded to do that. He obviously didn't want to be shot, but he did it by passing out the smallest bills first.
2: With just $52,000, the gang left the bank in a hurry using civilians as shields so police didn't shoot them. Here's Joe explaining how they escaped.
1: As I mentioned, their car had running boards as many of the cars did in those days. They gathered up female bank employees and women on the street and forced them to stand on the running boards of the cars and even lie across their laps in the back seat. So they surrounded themselves with innocent civilian women and drove out of town with their cars surrounded by civilians, preventing the police from shooting at them as they drove out of town. Pretty smart play. And uh, one of the people I interviewed way back in the 1970s about the bank robbery described what it was like to watch his fiance being dragged away by bank robbers and forced to stand on the back bumper of the car. Uh, he, of course, was petrified for her. Sure, she didn't like it much either. No, None of those hostages were hurt.
2: The gang even dropped some of the civilians off when they needed to go. It said that Miss Minnie Peem, an older woman who had been taken hostage, suddenly cried, let me out. This is where I live. And so Dillinger and his gang let her out, and then she boarded a city bus and went home. (laughs) Oh my gosh. See? He's got sympathizers.
0: Yeah. So the gang continued back to their home base of Minneapolis or St. Paul, Minnesota. Just a few months later, Dillinger went to Chicago, where the FBI caught up with him, and he was shot and killed outside of a movie theater.
2: A few people were actually injured during this fiasco in Iowa. Raymond L. James, who is secretary of the school board, was actually walking up to the bank to do business. He then encountered babyface Nelson, who ordered him to stop, but when he continued walking towards the bank and didn't comply, Nelson shot him in the leg. And then, as we mentioned, the gang shot at a security guard first, and one of those bullets nicked the guard in the chin and the ear, so he ended up with minor injuries as well.
0: And finally, Dillinger himself was injured. Above the bank were offices for some of the court judges. When Judge John Shipley heard the commotion below, he pulled a pistol out from his desk drawer and shot at the gang. He hit Dillinger in the shoulder from his third floor
2: office, which is a pretty good aim, in my opinion. Agreed. So unlike the movies, the gunfire was pretty minimal, but robberies are still traumatizing and dangerous for criminals, police officers, and civilians alike.
0: And then, of course, years later, we revisit these stories and make fun of them. So, (laughs) very (laughs) lighthearted. Yes. But one of the fun parts about being a reporter is that you get to interview all kinds of people. And for one of his stories about John Dillinger, my dad got to interview a bystander and witness to this Dillinger
1: robbery. George was a very lovely, funny elderly gentleman. I think he was 76 years old at the point where I interviewed him, so he would have been in his 30s at the time of the robbery. He had a vendor cart on the downtown streets, and he was walking from his vendor cart to get lunch when he encountered the bank robbery. If you don't mind, I'll just read you a little clip. This is what I wrote back in 1978, but I thought it was kind of a fun quote. So this is George Snyder I was rounding the corner onto Federal when suddenly I was looking down the barrel of a machine gun. The hole in the barrel looked as big as the top of that stool he laughed, pointing to an 18-inch-wide wooden stool in his backyard. The guy asked where I was going. I said to the soda grill, a cafe that was on the street there. He says to me, well, I guess you're not. I think that's as far as you should go. And I just stayed right there. The guy would have been in real trouble if he'd argued with him.
0: So, Allie, after all we've learned today, what are your thoughts on John Dillinger?
2: I don't want to say I'm a John Dillinger fan, but... You are attracted to him? I knew it.
1: Oh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially uh, post-plastic surgery. (laughs) Yeah. That's my fun fact. Did you know that John Dillinger got plastic surgery? I knew
0: that it was a rumor, but I... Again. No, I
2: think he legit did. I I am 90% sure it really happened.
0: I thought he was considering it and then he
2: died. I think he did it before he died. And it was to cover his face, like hide his face from all of those public enemy number yeah. one little movie intros that were playing True. at the
0: time. I thought that's what the mustache was for.
2: <laughs> mm, I don't know. But no, I, I do... I don't know why. I'd like to think that he was secretly good, but I know he like he did kill some people, so not a good guy. Big fan of the movie Public and en- is it Public Enemy or Public Enemies with John Dill- or where Johnny Depp plays John Dillinger? Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. And then I'm a creep, and I went to. Um, oh my gosh! One second, I got a notification that my computer is about to die because I closed oh it. <laughs> Oh okay Saved. I thought this was all going to just die. Okay.
0: Oh keeping this in there. <laughs>
2: <For sure. laughs> great, great. Okay, so like I was saying <laughs> I'm a creep and I even when I went to Chicago I made my friends go walk outside the movie theater. Yes. For shot at. Did you reenact it? I did not reenact it, but I felt his presence. No I'm kidding. <laughs> did you wear a red dress? No, I would Mm. (laughs) never... You wouldn't rat him out? (laughs) I don't know if I could. Oh my god, Allie. (laughs) (laughs) I would, like, rat him out in a way that didn't make him die, you know?
0: I think they were gonna kill him no matter what.
2: Ugh, so sad. Yeah. I mean, I I wish he would have stopped robbing people and hurting people, but... Yeah. I wouldn't want to be responsible for any death.
0: (laughs) No, I agree with that. I just think the FBI, like, hated him so much. Yeah. Which...
2: I think that's one of my favorite parts
0: of the story is just how like the FBI came up at the same time as John Dillinger and then you learn all about the FBI's history all because they wanted to basically
2: stop public enemy number 1. It's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Tell me more about what you thought.
0: Oh. I think we said a lot of our thoughts in the Bonnie and Clyde episode, which is what Dallas County. Dallas. Where it's like yeah, a ton of entertaining stories came out of this, which is great love the stories. And then also you have to remember that like it was pure chaos whenever a gang arrived in the town and a bunch of people were hurt. So similar thoughts to you. It's always entertaining to talk about. It is. And then my dad had thoughts on this too.
1: Sometimes painted as as a little sympathetic. And even I, I guess a moment ago, painted him as a little bit sympathetic. He got a raw deal when he was a young man and prison doesn't anybody any favors especially back in the 30s but the fact is he was a bad man a lot of people died from his gang and even though he wasn't one to initiate a lot of violence he tolerated a lot of violence and a lot of people died in those two years that he was out robbing banks so
2: today mason city actually still recalls when dillinger and his gang visited the globe gazette still reports occasionally on the anniversary of the robbery and up until about two thousand eighteen the city did John Dillinger reenactments. There's no saying how accurate these reenactments mm-hmm. were, but they are definitely a fun form of entertainment that reminds Mason City residents of some of their unique history. I would have liked to see one of those. Agree. Can we sign up for twenty twenty two Are you gonna Mason City reenactments? Are you gonna act in it? <laughs> oh no. I just I want to observe. Okay. <laughs> I, I am not an actor. Okay, just checking.
0: So although other reporting that my dad did inspired some of his murder mystery novels today, that doesn't seem to be the case for this story.
1: Um, Unlike the murders I covered as a reporter, the Dillinger robbery was a long ways in the past, back in the 70s when I was writing about it. You know, it predates my existence by a generation almost. It was always sort of a historical curiosity or interesting. And and like the quote I read from the George Snyder interview, it was easy 40 years after it happened or 45 years after it happened to write lightly about it, to have a little fun with it. So it never affected me the way that a crime did where I was on the scene and you could see the blood on the floor or or you're in the courtroom and you see the crying mother grieving for a loved one who's been killed. Those things affect you a lot, but the Dillinger robbery really didn't because as a reporter, it was a long time in my past.
2: Even so, we encourage you to pick up one or all four of Joe Lavallee's (laughs) books. He writes faster than we make podcasts. Oh, way faster. (laughs) But his fourth book was just released, and it is Performing Murder.
1: So the fourth novel just came out. It's called Performing Murder. And in it, Hollywood comes to Iowa to film a motion picture, and one of the actresses is found murdered. And Tony, of course, being the crime reporter for the local paper, is covering the crime, but then turns out she was seen in his car the night of the murder, and somebody that he cares about is accused of killing her, and he's suddenly very entwined in this case. One other thing I would mention about the book that was really Great. And I always have to be careful how I describe this because I don't like to give too much away. But if you think about it, one of the challenges that a murder mystery writer has is figuring out new ways to kill people. If you read a lot of fiction like I do, you've read dozens of books where people are shot or killed with a knife or poisoned or run off the road in their cars or and so for this novel performing murder i had an idea of how to murder somebody in a way i'd never seen before so that scene in the book was really fun Uh, performing murder and all of my books are available anywhere Um, any bookstore in north america can order them they're on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com, and if you prefer to have one that's inscribed to you by the author, you can order it from me directly at JosephLavalle.com. Thank you for your support. I, if you read it, uh, please email me and, and tell me um, what you think, and I love hearing from people.
2: Since we know you already love true crime, I'm sure you'll love fictional crime as well. And with that, we are wrapping up our final bonus episode of 2021. Woohoo! We We did it. (laughs)
0: We will see you next year in 2022. Hope you all have a wonderful holiday season and a very happy new year. Bye! Bye! Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But... I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, facts, literally anything you think would help us continue making Diowa a success. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.